Of course, it was too difficult for him. He didn't calm down. Neither of us calmed down. We had a disaster of a lesson. I'd like to start by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is made, the Pindurup people, and to acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters and community. I pay my respects to them and their culture and honour their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode three of My Horse Taught Me That, the podcast all about equine behavior, horse-human relationships and training concepts that not only help you build an amazing relationship with your horse, but also with the other animals and people in your life too. I'm your host, Sarah Jackson from Equestrian Balance, and I'm an equine behavior geek. I'm going to teach you how to get the behavior that you want, whilst also building the relationship that you want with your horse. I'm super excited to share that doors will be opening soon for my signature online program, Learn to Speak Horse. And because it's really important to me that this course is accessible for everyone, if you know in your bones that this program is the right fit for you and your horse, but it's a stretch financially, then I've got you. I'm offering a full scholarship to the September-October 2023 program to one lucky person. So keep listening because I'll share more details after the episode. Everybody loves a win-win, right? You know, that unicorn situation where everybody gets what they want. Fantastic. It's one of my favorite things in this world. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now, when I was pregnant with my son, I bought a lot of stuff. To be fair, I really did buy a lot of stuff. But by far and away, my favorite thing that I bought during that time was a plate and cutlery set for my son. Now, you might be thinking, why on earth were you bothering with plate and cutlery sets when you hadn't even had your baby yet? But when I saw this set, I just knew it was something that we had to have. It's amazing. We've used it since my son could hold a fork and we still use it multiple times a day and it's just fantastic. What is it about it that makes it so amazing? Well, the whole thing is designed like a construction site. So the fork is a little forklift, like a really realistic little forklift. And the spoon is a little loader, again, really beautifully designed, really realistic. And instead of a knife, there's a little dozer to push the food. And the plate is designed like the construction site. It's got little ramps and and troughs and different little areas. It's designed literally to help them to push the food up onto their spoon and get it on their fork really easily, which is just fantastic because it means that not only is it super fun to use, but they get this really quick win of being able to use the fork and the spoon really quickly and get the food into their mouth really easily. 
Now, I bought this set before I knew that my son was going to be digger mad, but that is a big bonus because he just loves using it and it's really super easy for, for him to use, which is just totally cool. Win-win for everyone. Now, if you're a parent and you're struggling with your child eating, the company that makes these is called Constructive Eating. I'll put a link in the show notes, but check them out. They have a number of other designs if diggers are not your child's thing. Why I love, love, love this set and wanted to get it way before my son was ready for it is because it uses my all-time favorite way of getting animals or people to do the behavior we want, which is called setting the environment up for success, which basically means that we make changes to the environment to make the behavior that we want desirable for our learner, so whether that's an animal or another person, to do. So typically that means it's easy and it's fun or it's pleasurable in some way for them to engage in that behavior. So we think about that cutlery set, it's super easy to use and it's super fun. So we've got, you know, this perfect scenario where they're, they're really keen to use it. So they're really developing the skill of being able to use the cutlery. Absolutely perfect. There are some other great examples around. Now, you might have seen cigarette butt voting bins around. There are this really cool idea where basically you have a bin in two sections and it's got a clear front on it and it's just for cigarette butts. And, you know, there's an important but divisive question at the top, like which local sporting team do you prefer which way does a toilet roll hang or, you know, does pineapple belong on pizza? Those kinds of important topics where people tend to be quite divided. And so people get to vote on what their preference is with their cigarette butt. And because the front of the bin is clear, they get to see which side is winning and they kind of get to see their vote count, so to speak. And so because people enjoy the novelty of participating in this and they, they like the control of, you know, being able to have a vote and see that their vote is counted. These are really successful in getting the targeted behavior, which is putting your cigarette butt in the bin. Now, this approach can be used for just about anything. Back in 1999 at the Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, they were having a problem with male patrons missing when they were using the urinal and it was costing a lot of money to get cleaners sort of pretty constantly in there to clean up the mess and make sure it was nice for, for people to go in there. And so what they did was they ended up sticking a sticker of a fly in the bottom of the urinal where, you know, the ideal stream would go. And it turns out men can't help but want to aim at that fly which is perfect because then they're aiming right where they need to aim and voila, we don't have a cleaning bill anymore. So that was a really successful strategy on their part and it, it's just a really good one to show how setting up the environment for success can totally change behaviour and can solve problems and save a lot of money. I love this strategy so much. And part of the reason that I love it is because it kind of removes us from the equation. So we don't have to make 
the horse or the human do the behavior that we want them to do, which depending on which method we use could cause a withdrawal from our relationship bank account. Basically, the environment just makes it something that they want to do and that they find easy and fun to do. And so they can't help but want to do the behavior, which is such a win-win. Another example is piano stairs, which were first installed in Odenplan in Stockholm, but can now be found all over the world. It's like a normal staircase that they want to encourage people to use as opposed to using an escalator or lift to try and help people get more exercise as a health promotion initiative. And so what they do is they put panels on top of the stairs that make it look like a piano, but actually also create a sound. And the sound is different for every step in the same way that it would be different on a piano. And so you can play the piano by going up and down the stairs if you wanted, or it just plays different notes as you walk up the stairs, which is so cool and so fun. In that first one in Stockholm they did, they actually found a 66% increase in people using the stairs as a result of this initiative, which is pretty impressive. And it just goes to show how much fun can drive our behavior. So the key to having this strategy work is to make the behavior that we want both easy and fun if we're dealing with people or easy, calming and pleasurable if we're dealing with horses. Okay, so let's talk about horses now. So I'd like to start with an example from my life of what it looks like when you make it difficult for your horse, which is the exact opposite of what this strategy is trying to achieve but I think it helps illustrate the point. And this is from back when I didn't know the information that I know now. So many years ago, I took my horse Taglin to a clinic where they had an indoor arena. So this particular indoor arena was basically a fully enclosed shed. There was no windows, there was a small doorway, and there was absolutely no way you could see out once you were inside. And now all the horses for the clinic were yarded immediately outside the arena. But when the horse was inside for a lesson and they were individual lessons, they could not see the other horses outside. So I walked my horse into the arena and within 10 metres of that doorway, he'd gone from calmly walking beside me, listening to me, to acting like I didn't even exist. His head was up high, he had the nervous poos, he was neighing. It's frustrating because we're there for a lesson and I want to learn some stuff. And here he is. He feels like he's grown another hand. He's looking everywhere, moving around, not paying any attention to me. Not only is it frustrating, it's also a bit scary and intimidating and probably also a bit dangerous. The reality with horses is that they can find it really difficult to be separated from their herd or even from other horses that they've just met, as in this case. And the reason for that is that in the wild, they need their herd around them to survive and to be safe. So their herd help scan the horizon for predators and they get to kind of take that duty in turn, which means that some can rest while the others are kind of on watch, so to speak. So having a herd around you is actually required for a horse's safety. And so they're hardwired to need a herd around them in order to feel safe. 
So essentially, if they go into an environment where there's no other horses and they're suddenly completely isolated from those other horses, they can feel very unsafe, which is why we get all of this separation anxiety type behavior coming out. Now, the instructor actually offered to get someone to go and get one of the other horses and hold them. So kind of stand them in the doorway. So he had a companion that he could see, which would have been the perfect solution and one that I would recommend now in that situation. But me being me back then, knowing what I knew back then, said, oh no, he has to learn. So essentially then I'm asking him to deal with the full on 100% difficulty level of separation anxiety and jolly well do the lesson at the same time because he has to learn and, you know, it was just ridiculous now when I think about it. Of course, it was too difficult for him. He didn't calm down. Neither of us calmed down. We had a disaster of a lesson. I ended up crying in the arms of the lady with the horse in the yard next door. Poor lady, lovely lady, just happened to ask, how did your lesson go, you know, after we came out? She got a little more than she bargained for, poor thing. But why did it go so pear-shaped? It was because back then I was blinkered by this belief that he had to learn and that learning meant he had to do it the hard way. And, you know, I had to push him through the bad behavior and make him do it. And that's what I'd been taught. So that that's all I knew. But that is absolutely what I believe to be true. And this belief blinded me from realizing that in the short term, having another horse there to help my horse to calm down would have actually allowed me to get something out of this clinic that I paid a lot of money to attend. It also blinded me from even contemplating or realizing that there might be other ways to teach my horse to learn to cope with being inside an indoor arena and being separated from other horses. Or really to even ask the question whether it was worth it to bother trying to train that when I was just there on a one-day clinic. So yeah, my belief, which was that, you, you know, you've got to ride the horse through the dark tunnel and push them through that bad behavior to get to the good behavior or the sunshine on the other side of the tunnel. And that was what I was taught. That was how the instructor who taught me, you know, originally explained it. And that belief that I held led me to make a really dumb decision that day and probably many other days as well. And and I tell that story just because I think it's an example of how, you know, we pretty routinely put our horses in really difficult situations and make it actually really hard for them to do the thing that we want them to do. So one way that we can make it easy for our horses to do the thing that we want to do is identify if they are suffering from some kind of separation anxiety and make sure that there's another horse close by to help them to calm down and relax. That might look like bringing another horse to a yard near the arena where you're working or having someone hold a horse or tying a horse up nearby if it is indoors. It might mean going out on a trail ride with a buddy or making sure that whenever you've got your horse out to tie them up and groom them or stand for the farrier or what have you, that another horse comes out to keep them company. I think it's wonderful to note also that this 
need has been recognised by the Paralympic Committee and they allow a companion horse to come in with the competing horse and to stand just outside the arena. They call it a friendly horse to help keep that horse calm whilst it's competing. And I just think that's such a wonderful initiative and so respectful of our horses and our horses' needs. So bringing another horse into the equation to help our horse keep calm if they are suffering from separation anxiety is one way that we can set up the environment for success if that is an element of our situation. Now, I do want to point out that doing this can be thought of as a management strategy. Now, it might be something that is just all you need and you can just carry on doing that forever and you and your horse are quite happy. But if you do want to be able to separate your horse from companions, there are calm, gentle ways that you can train that behavior. And it's a gradual process that I'm not going to go into detail on today, but I just wanted to point out that it is possible to train, but that if you were going to train that, you would do that separately and then as a management strategy whilst you were training it before the behavior was solid, you would make sure there was another horse nearby so your horse didn't suffer from separation anxiety during that training period, if that makes sense. Another really simple way that we can set our environment up for success is just to have a hay net whenever we want our horse to stand tired. I'm sure you're all familiar with a horse, might be your horse, might be someone else's horse that you know of, that fidgets and paws and pulls on the rope. Maybe they bite at the rope when they're standing tired. They're not very good at standing still calmly. And we have to remember that our horses are not designed to stand still, they're designed to move. And it can be really difficult for them to stay standing still. So something as simple as obviously making sure they're not separated from their companions, going on from our last point, but also making sure they've got a hay net there can give them something to do, can give them a reason to stand still. Especially if we're going to do something that's going to take a while, like trimming their feet or clipping their coat. You know, having that hay net there is going to give them a reason to stand still without fuss and give you the time to do the things that you need to do. Another suggestion that I have for setting the environment up for success is to train where it's easy to do so. So for example, if your horse really struggles to concentrate when they're in the arena, but concentrates beautifully when you ride in the paddock, then if you want to work on your shoulder in, I suggest you ride in the paddock. Because your horse is going to be able to concentrate, it's going to make it much easier for them to get success and for you to get success. You're setting yourselves up for success by doing that. Now, having said that, you probably do also want to eventually be able to ride in the arena. So separately, I'd be recommending that you work on getting your horse comfortable in the arena. But that's a separate training session, possibly at the end of your ride, to when you want to be training shoulder in. We don't want to do training shoulder in and learning to be calm at the same time. That's not going to work. It's just going to be a disaster. We're not going to set anything up for success. It'll be too much pressure to be calm and too much distraction to do a good shoulder in. You would separate those elements out and teach them separately. And so you'd be busy doing your shoulder in in the paddock and then possibly after you untack, take your horse out for a little walk in the arena. Maybe they get to roll in the sand or they get some carrots when they're in there or they just get to chill out and have a mooch about and have a look around and learn 
calmly and quietly that it's nothing to be scared of in there and gradually you can spend a little more time in that environment whilst they're staying calm and you can start gradually little bit by little bit changing the association in the arena to make it a calm pleasurable association in the arena with a view to one day you know they're going to be able to concentrate for an extended period because they're going to associate being in that arena with good things. So nowadays I use this technique of setting up for success during a training session as well. So for example, recently I've been working with my mare Eliana to teach her long reining. Now I train with positive reinforcement, which means that I don't use whips or flags to get forward movement. That hasn't been a problem thus far because normally I'm standing somewhere near her shoulder and if I cue forward movement and I don't get it, I can normally just walk forward and then I'll get the forward movement. So I can get that behavior just by moving my own body. But if I'm going to stand in a position behind her, then I can't do that. So if I'm standing in long reigning position, I'm behind her. A, she can't even see my normal cue to walk on, which would be a hand movement in front of her nose. I can't do that. So I've got to come up with a new cue. And secondly, I can't walk forward from her shoulder to get her to walk with me because I'm standing behind her. So it's not going to work. So I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make it happen? And so the answer was to set the environment up for success. So to start with, um, I used something that she knows very well, which is to stand and station on a mat. She'll quite happily walk to a mat away from me when I'm standing at her shoulder. So I put a series of mats along the driveway and we practice going up and down the driveway from mat to mat to mat until she got so that she saw those mats laid out. She was like, right, I'm there. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know this pattern. I know what to do here. And when we got to there, then I knew that I could start to move my position further back along her body until I was standing behind her. Voila, suddenly here I am in long reigning position and she's doing that lovely behavior of moving forward that I wanted. And then I can add in my verbal cue and suddenly we're going forward from mat to mat to mat with me standing behind in that long reigning position. So that's just one example of how I have used that setting the environment up for success by using a behavior that was really easy for her because it's something that she knew really well and it was really familiar to her combining that with positive reinforcement so it was pleasurable for her to do so there's a strong desire for her to engage in that behavior and so you know win-win something else that's not directly related to training but absolutely impacts the efficacy of our training and whether our horse is in a good state to learn when we turn up to train them is their living environment so do they have companionship? Are they able to fully interact with at least one other horse? Can they move around? Do they have room to move around? Do they have a reason to move around? You know, have they got grazing that they can move around to access? Or are they able to move between different resources, perhaps shelter or a hay station or a water trough? Do they have constant access to some sort of forage like hay or pasture? You'd be amazed how making changes to our horse's living environment to provide these things can really set our horse up for success 
by improving their physical, mental and emotional well-being and making them calmer and easier to train. What I really love about this strategy is that it's the environment changing the behavior and not us. And I know, you know, we're the ones changing the environment. So technically we are the ones orchestrating it all and we're the ones with, you know, the master plan. But from our learner's perspective, they're just interacting with the environment in a way that they find easy and most pleasurable. And it's a total win-win because, you know, they're doing the behavior that we're looking for as part of that. I use this strategy a lot with my toddler, especially for body care things like toothbrushing and hair washing and nappy changes, things that really need to happen, but that I really want his willing cooperation with. With hair washing, for example, it can be such a struggle to keep the soap out of their eyes. I'm sure if you're a parent, you totally can identify with this or even from your own childhood. I'm sure you have memories of of this. The pain is real. When this first started being an issue for us, I would just ask him to tilt his head back. He would do that up until the point where he felt the water start to run down over his head and then he would automatically tip his head down and the soap would go in his eyes, cue the tears, and then we'd have this absolute mess because he'd still have all the soap and then it's not impossible to get that soap out of his hair without more tears. So that was when I decided to try setting the environment up for success. Now we've got these puzzle pieces that stick onto wet tiles. So I put them up high on the wall and I said to him, all right, so we're going to wash your hair. I'm going to need you to tilt your head back. I want you to keep looking at the puzzle pieces. And then I asked him questions about them to keep his focus on them. Just how many pirates are there? What color are the parrots? How many ships have red sails? Those kind of things, but just enough so that he was really focused up and looking at the puzzles to be able to answer the questions. And it kept him with his head in that tilted position for long enough. Well, I just had a little cup of water and I started at the back of his head and I rinsed the back and then I rinsed the sides and then lastly I rinsed the front. And it was really quick and really easy because he kept his head up in that position. And I just kept asking questions until we were done. You know, that has been a really successful strategy for us. And just by making that slight change to the environment, I was able to get that behavior that I wanted of him keeping his head tilted up. He found it easy to do and fun to do because he was engaging in the game with the puzzles and thus far is working well. Now, I do realize that, you know, pirate puzzles probably not going to hold his attention forever. I'm going to have to come up with something else. But in the meantime, he's laying these neural pathways that say, oh, when we do hair washing, I tilt my head back. And also the emotional association that this process is easy, it's quick, and it's fun. Win-win. So my challenge for you is to find a way to make a change to the environment, whether that's a training situation or a management situation, to set your horse up for success in some way or another. So think about something that you'd like your horse to do and how you might be able to change the environment to get them to do that behavior, to make that behavior that you want really easy for the horse, to make it calming and pleasurable for the horse to engage in that behavior. What small changes could you tweak? Could you add any props 
or some sort of food. Remember, food can be calming and pleasurable. Would a change of location help? Or possibly introducing a companion? Is there something that your horse is fearful of that you could remove from the equation? Covering a mirror up, for example. Is it possible to leverage something they already know in order to teach them something new? Is there anything that you think you need to separate out and train as two separate things rather than, you know, one thing together? So perhaps we need to build a pleasurable association with a certain location or, you know, a piece of tack or the horse float, for example, and do that separately from your normal everyday training. Is there anything in the way that your horse is normally housed that you could change to increase their access to companions, to space or to forage? They're just a few prompts to help get you thinking about how you might be able to set up the environment for success to help your horse to do the behavior that you want them to do of their own volition. It's such a great strategy to use and a great one to practice because the more that we can incorporate this strategy into our life with our horse, the easier everything becomes. So to wrap up, I'd like to just reiterate some of the key points that we've discussed. Firstly, setting up the environment for success is when we make changes to the environment that mean that our target behavior, the behavior that we want our learner to do, becomes really, really likely. And secondly, it is really likely to happen because our learner is going to find it easy and pleasurable. So for humans, that typically means that it's easy and it's fun. And for horses, that means it's easy and it's calming and it's pleasurable. And thirdly, this hands-off approach can safeguard our relationship because we don't need to and aren't in danger of being tempted to kind of make them do the behavior which can create a withdrawal in our relationship bank account. So we eliminate the possibility of that withdrawal because it's the environment that's creating the behavior. And lastly, remember that this stuff applies to everyone, other humans and animals, not just horses. And as I mentioned earlier, I use this stuff routinely with my toddler, especially for body care, things that need to happen like nappy changes and toothbrushing and hair washing. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for what has been episode three of My Horse Taught Me That. I look forward to coming to your eardrums soon with episode four, where we're going to talk more about equine behavior, horse-human relationship, and training concepts that help you build an amazing relationship, not just with your horse, but with other animals and people as well. If you've enjoyed this podcast or found the information valuable, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But more importantly, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with your friends and help me to share it with the world by leaving a five-star rating or review. It really helps other people to find the podcast too. Are you curious to find out more about the Learn to Speak Horse program or how to apply for the scholarship? Of course you are, you beautiful soul. 
To apply, you just need to answer three simple questions. All the details are outlined on my website. Head to www.equestrianbalance.com.au forward slash services and follow the link to the Learn to Speak Horse program to find out more, apply for the scholarship and get your sweet self on the wait list. Lastly, a big thank you to Music Unlimited for our groovy soundtrack.